Can I honestly say, um, I, I really can't put words to what a delight it is to, to be here and to have the privilege of, of opening up God's Word for the 10 current and past members of Hothan Malahide Presbyterian Church and the other 590 of you, wherever you come from. <laughs> but it is a precious thing to be here. Um, let's pray together. Loving Father, as as we thought about last night. Incredibly, you are the great God who speaks to frail, weak, needy people like us. And you do so relentlessly, freely. So we ask again that this evening we would hear your voice through your word by the power of your spirit, that every single one of us would walk out the doors at the end knowing that we have met with the living God and so be set up, strengthened, refreshed to live for the glory of the Lord Jesus in the power of the Spirit who has been poured out on us, your church. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I can say with complete conviction is that when we moved to Queensland 12 years ago, my life changed. Instead of getting up in the cold and dark, I get up most days at least to beautiful sunshine. Instead of living in a brick house with 24 radiators, I live in a wooden house with four air conditioning units. Instead of watching the water swirl clockwise as it goes down the plug hole, I watch it swirl anti-clockwise. I don't listen to RTE to the ABC. Instead of putting a coat on to go outside, I put on sunscreen. I'm afraid I've even succumbed to the Australian incredibly snobby insistence brought over by the Italians, no doubt, that the only coffee worth drinking is freshly ground and comes from the espresso machine which sits on our kitchen bench. And can I say, thank you, God, for Josh being here this weekend. Now, of course, I'll still be supporting Ireland when the Rugby World Cup kicks off, but pretty much everything else changed on the 5th of January, 2012. It was a decisive day for our family. And the day we've just read about in Acts 2 was a day on which everything changed for the people of God, dramatically, permanently, gloriously changed, because this was the day that we became the people of the Spirit. As we saw last night, from the beginning, God's people were to be people of the Word. God spoke to them on Sinai and kept speaking to them through the words of the Torah and the prophets, but they had a double problem. Most of the people, most of the time, just refused to listen to what God was saying. That was clearly a problem. And then there was the fact that even for the best of God's people, even for the most wholehearted, listening to God and doing what He said consistently day after day, week after week, year after year, just seemed too hard. You can't really read the Old Testament carefully and miss the fact that even the great ones stuff it up. Moses dies outside the land for acting like God. David blows it with Bathsheba. Solomon, supposedly the wisest of all men, marries Pharaoh's daughter. And then 999 other women 
adopting their gods as his own. Hezekiah falls into self-pity. Josiah falls into stupidity. And so it goes on and on. Something is clearly broken. Now, of course, none of this should really have come as a surprise because God had said that this would happen to Moses right back in Deuteronomy. Here's Deuteronomy 31, verse 20. These are God's words to Israel. When I bring them into the land, I swore to give their ancestors a land flowing with milk and honey. They will eat their fill and prosper. They will turn to other gods and worship them, despising me and breaking my covenant. And when many troubles and afflictions come to them, this song that he's about to teach Moses will testify against them because their descendants will not have forgotten it. For I know what they're prone to do even before I take them into this land. See, Israel may well have been the people of the Word, but something was missing. And in God's great kindness, we now can see clearly what it was. They were not yet the people of the Spirit. God was active, of course. Uh, somehow He was enabling people to cling on to Him, trusting Him to sort out the mess ahead of time to provide the forgiveness that we all need through some perfect sacrifice to come, through His coming King, through a new covenant. See, God says over and over again in the Old Testament, I will be your God, you will be my people but something is missing. The ability, the motivation, the determination, the power to live out what God says, because they don't yet have the Spirit. The Spirit in the Old Testament makes a few fleeting, if important, appearances. He's there at the beginning of time, intimately involved in creation. At key moments, He equips special people for special tasks, coming on them and occasionally going again but he remains elusive, almost shy. But the Old Testament is clear that he is needed and he's coming. The Old Testament makes clear that God's covenant, that you can sum up as, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, needs an overhaul because God flawlessly meets his side of the bargain. I will be your God but that you will be my people. Israel made a mess of that for generations. But God had also promised right at the beginning in the time of Abraham that His covenant people would grow and flourish and bring blessing to all nations. Yet as the Old Testament grinds on, God's people are getting smaller, not bigger. So the prophets speak again and again and again about a day that's coming when the covenant people of God, the people of the Word, will also become the people of the Spirit, and everything will change. Just hear these words from Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says Yahweh your God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you've profaned among them. And then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares Yahweh your God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. 
I'll take you from the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries, bring you into your own place. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean from all your uncleannesses, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The people of the Word need God to act and pour out His Spirit so that we can listen and obey, and so that God's work explodes from a shrinking nation to a growing family made up of people from every nation right across this globe. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, He ascends to the right hand of God, and He does it. He pours out that Spirit. Welcome to the day of Pentecost. So what actually happens on that day? Well, in Acts 2, everything changes. Not just for a few thousand people who happened to be in Jerusalem sometime in the early 30s AD, but for all of us. When Jesus pours out His Spirit on His friends, it changes everything. Now, of course, in one way, we could say that the church was born when God brought Jacob's extended family out of Egypt and spoke to them on Mount Sinai, as we saw last night. But the Bible doesn't really use that language. It's here that the church 2.0, the church as we know it, is born. It's not overstating it to say if it weren't for the events described in Acts 2, we wouldn't be sitting here this evening. But have you, have you ever noticed the very strange and underwhelming events leading up to the outpouring of the Spirit in the book of Acts? Now, imagine you're Luke for a second, okay? You, you've written your gospel. You're coming to volume two, the story of the church. You've got the job of writing up what happened next as the message of Jesus changes the world before his very eyes. So there he is, Luke, sitting on a Bacam boat with Paul or something, chipping away at his epic account. Okay, where do we start? The ascension. That's easy. Good dramatic start. Jesus equips us with power, sends us to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Yeah, I like that. Okay, Jesus promising to return. Great. Now, the gift of the Spirit. Wrong. Luke has got just about the most exciting event after Jesus' death and resurrection in all history to talk about, and he doesn't go there. Instead, he spends more than half a chapter in Acts 1 mucking around, telling us about two guys who don't even appear in the rest of the New Testament. It doesn't appear to matter which of them is appointed as Judas' replacement. Seriously, Luke, what do you do? Could you just get on with it? Is he a bit OCD and just can't bear to leave out any of the details? No. Luke is flagging up in a slightly unusual way the fact that what is about to happen is the fulfillment of everything that we just read in Ezekiel 
and lots of other things that Jeremiah and Hosea and Joel and all the others said. Not only are God's plans completely on track to set up the church 2.0, they're about to come to spectacular fruition. Everything that God has promised to do for Abraham and his descendants is about to fall on these 11, no, 11 that really doesn't work there. We need 12. Doesn't really matter whether it's Matthias or the other guy. We need 12. Because Luke is saying, it's starting. Now, I know I've labored that a bit, but before we get into the details of Acts 2, we really need to appreciate it doesn't just drop out of the sky. If we read Acts 2 like that, we'll get terribly mixed up. We need to see that God has been building up to this moment from the very beginning. Everything he said to Abraham, everything he said to Moses on Mount Sinai, everything he said through the prophets, all that he has done through Jesus, died, risen, exalted, leads up to this moment. So what happens? Do you notice that Luke's description of the spiritual fireworks in 2 verses 1 to 11 is fairly vague? Here's what he says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Pentecost was the holiday to mark the arrival of God's people at Mount Sinai back in Exodus 19. It was 50 days. That's Pentecost means 50th in Greek, after Passover. This is the new Sinai. Remember, last night we were on Mount Sinai. That's where they find out they're the people of the Word. Now at this new Sinai, they become the people of the Spirit. The original exodus involved a dramatic rescue from death, a covenant, a relationship set up by God, and an introduction to the beautiful life with God through the Torah. This new exodus begins with Jesus rescuing us not out of Egypt, but through his death and resurrection. Continues with Jesus setting up a new covenant in his blood, which is now brought to life by the Spirit, opening up the possibility of our life in union with Christ through his power. Everything changes here. Then this happens, verse 2. There came from heaven a sound a bit like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues like fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. In the Old Testament, when God showed up, He was often accompanied by wind and flames. That's what happens here. The special effects are the sign that God is at work. But the key thing that happens isn't the sight or the sound, it's that Jesus' words start speaking in foreign languages. In Greek, a bit like English, the word tongue has two meanings. The thing in your mouth, the image in verse 3, and language, as in your mother tongue in verse 4. I do wonder how many generations of students have prayed for this miracle to be repeated before they're leaving cert Irish paper. But... <laughs> But this isn't God giving relief to slack students. Luke tells us there's a very definite purpose in this. God is going global. 
It had always been God's plan. From the earliest pages of the Bible, God insisted he is passionately concerned to see a planet, a cosmos full of people living in relationship with him. In Acts 2, God is doing what he always said he would do. It's totally plain from verse 5. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, a multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? You know that the Galileans were the, were the northerners. They were renowned for having a whiny accent and saying situation a lot, you know? How is it that we hear these northerners speaking in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the bits of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Christians, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Jerusalem was packed with Jewish people from all over the Mediterranean. Iran, Iraq, North Africa, Egypt, Sudan, Turkey, Rome. And suddenly they all hear Jesus' friends speaking the gospel in their mother tongue. Fiona, my wife, Scottish, but she laughs at me because she thinks, I, I can hear someone speaking in an Irish accent from about 100 meters no, we can be in the middle of Brisbane, in the middle of the shopping precinct, and I'm going, I think that guy over there is Irish. You know? She says, what is it about you people? You know? <laughs> There's something precious about hearing English butchered the way it normally is where you grew up. You know? That's what happens. What's going on here? God is delivering on his promise to bring people from every nation to him. Genesis 12, God said, I will use this people to reach the whole world. He keeps repeating that promise over and over through the Old Testament, and it never happens. God's people only ever drag His name through the mud. God hints endlessly that one day all nations will be included in God's sweeping plan. One day the message of God's grace will sound across this planet, and it all comes to a head and kicks off here. Because as these religious tourists in Jerusalem go back home, they would fulfill this promise as through them God's master plan starts to go global. See, in this chapter, we get to watch as God establishes a new community, a new Israel to which anyone can belong, no matter where we were born. And it all happens as God pours out His Spirit. As He does, just everything changes. What's your first memory of using the internet? I can vividly remember sitting in front of my old PC in Hoth about 2001, waiting for Windows to crash again, as every search took about 20 seconds to perform. Even the simplest page took forever to load. And as for pictures, like just forget about video or music, pictures, do you remember, those of you who are old enough, sitting watching like line by line coming up, you know? Oh, it was painful. 
Then came broadband. Everything changed. I think my internet connection is now about 5,000 times faster. The first dial-up thing I had back then. Now, in a way, you know, that dial-up connection and my current fiber optic broadband kind of do the same thing. But you can't really compare because one of them works. When God pours out the Spirit, it's as if broadband communication with God is arrived. Everything is different. Suddenly, God's purposes can be fulfilled. His purposes go global. As the new people of the Spirit, we are transformed. We are connected to God and to each other in a new way. And in the time we've got left this evening, I just want to point out three key things from Acts 2, which take us to the heart of what it means for us to be the people of the Spirit. Here's the first. It's really not complicated. It's the fact that the Spirit now lives in everyone who believes. Perhaps the most extravagant claim in the entire book of Acts is tucked away in these verses, but it's so understated that it's actually really easy to miss. In verse 14, Peter starts to explain to the crowd what's just happened. He lifts his voice, he addresses the men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Listen to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's a fairly weak attempt at humor, but I can't mask the most incredible claim which Peter then makes. Now, it's interesting, up to this point in the narrative, the focus has been on Peter and his friends, what's happened to them. But he now quotes from the book written by the prophet Joel 600 years or so earlier. Acts 2.17, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams. Male servants, female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, initially, it sounds like Peter's just explaining the slightly over-exuberant behavior of the 120 first followers of Jesus. Then he quotes Joel. He states it unambiguously. See, what's happening is not actually just about the chosen few. It's not actually about speaking in languages that everyone can understand. It's the sign that it's happening. God is doing what He has promised. He's pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. Almost immediately, over 3,000 people are impacted. The implications are massive. The Spirit is doing what Jesus said He would do. Jesus' own words in John 14, I'll ask the Father, He'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. In verse 23 of John 14, He adds, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And now that's happening in real time. From this moment on, anyone who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus can say with confidence, the Spirit has made His permanent home in us. 
If you prefer, we have been filled with the Spirit. That's a huge change. You know, in the Old Testament, you had to be someone to get the Spirit. People from Ballymacash and Lisburn in County Antrim didn't get it. You had to be a prophet or a priest or a king. Only the big players got the Spirit. But Joel says when the new system for knowing God is rolled out, everyone gets it. We're all promoted. Suddenly the job of prophesying, which is basically telling people what God has done and will do, will be shared out among all of us. And that's what happens. See, when the Spirit comes, He creates a community where everyone is equal. The church that the Spirit creates is a level playing field. We're all filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? The glorious thing about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is everyone is equal. Of course, we've all got different abilities, qualities, experience, personalities. Of course, we've all got different jobs to do, as we saw with Dave this morning. Only properly qualified godly men are to be elders, for example. But we must never, ever lose sight of the fact that in the church of the Lord Jesus, every one of us is equal. Doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian 20 years or 20 minutes. Doesn't matter if you're 17 or 75. Doesn't matter whether you've planted 20 churches or the very word church planting scares the pants off you. Doesn't matter whether the gran your granddad built the church with his bare hands or you escaped to Ireland last week by the skin of your teeth. If we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are equal because we've all been filled with the Spirit. The way in which the New Testament uses that phrase rules out any possibility that some of us are half full and some of us are overflowing and some of us have just got a little dribble of the Spirit in the bottom. The Spirit is a person. When He moves out, when He is poured into our lives, we get all of Him. It means we're equal. It also means, now this is a dangerous thing to say, so I'll qualify it in a minute. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it means we've all got something to say. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone has the right to talk as much as they would like. Peter's point here is a bit different. But he does say that if we're part of the church of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit has been poured into us, that every one of us has something to say that is worth listening to. We all have the capacity and the potential to prophesy, which here means encouraging other people by speaking to them about the Lord Jesus. Now, I've got to say, for some of us, it's not actually a problem believing that, partly because we think anything we have to say on any subject is inherently worth listening to. Now, can I say, if, like me, you're a bit like that, I am not really talking to you, okay? This reassurance is for those of us, and there are lots of us even sitting in this room, who are convinced that we don't really have anything to say of any value to anyone. We're happy to sit and listen. Just don't ask us to speak, because all we have to say won't really help anyone. If that's you, I want you to listen very carefully to this. You're wrong. 
and do not take that from me, God says he has given you the ability to encourage other people with the message of the Lord Jesus. You may choose to disbelieve him, but that's between you and the Lord. But you need to recognize that this is what you're doing, and you're flying in the face of what Joel said and Peter echoed. God has given all of us the ability to encourage the people of God around us just by talking about what Jesus is doing in our lives. So we better get on with it. Not least because this is actually the sign that history is moving to its stunning climax. When he wrote his prophecy, Joel made it clear that this dramatic intervention of God, pouring out his spirit on all flesh, was part of the final movement of history. Here's how he expresses it in typically dramatic prophetic terms. Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just a couple of weeks earlier, Jerusalem had grown dark as God provided us with the ultimate sign that he was acting. He showed us that great and magnificent day when the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, died and rose and now has made it possible for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord to be saved. We now live in that moment. And as the people of the Spirit, it falls to us to speak about Jesus to each other and to our world. For as the Apostle Paul adds in Romans 10, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news. And that's us. And we can do it because the Spirit is in us as individuals and actually dwells in us as the people of God. So that's the first key thing we need to take on board from this chapter. The Spirit lives in everyone who believes. The second thing is not hard to spot. It's that the Spirit makes Jesus our greatest passion. I've got a fairly eclectic bunch of friends. They're intensely passionate about all kinds of things. Railway locomotives, marathon running, breeding parrots, dark chocolate, Taylor Swift, Hamilton the Musical, Inverness Caledonian Thistle Football Club, the musical merits of the banjo. I could go on and on. I know they often do. And, and most of that's okay. I'm not too sure about Taylor Swift, but most of the rest of it, it's part of the richness of the life which God gives us. But what does the Spirit do? The Spirit ensures that our greatest passion, whether we express it quietly or exuberantly, is Jesus himself. Now, sometimes the Spirit does that in us gradually. Sometimes it's a slow, painful process as the Spirit weans us off all other things. Sometimes it involves the Spirit warming up our cold hearts after a barren patch. But the Spirit is always in the business of making Jesus our passion. 
That's what he does. That's why now the Spirit has come, the life of the church has really got to be all about Jesus. I know it seems a little bit obvious, but it's so important. You can see that from verse 22. Peter starts to focus on Jesus, and in this he sets the pattern not just for the rest of the book of Acts, but the rest of the New Testament. It's interesting, isn't it, that even on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit has just been poured out, it's the Lord Jesus who takes center stage. But that's the way it's supposed to be, because the Spirit always creates communities where the spotlight falls directly on the Lord Jesus. It's Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension that makes it possible for us to get the Spirit. It's Jesus Himself who pours Him into our lives. And when Jesus does that, what does the Spirit do? The Spirit helps us to gasp and say, wow, isn't Jesus utterly amazing? In the long section of this chapter that runs all the way to verse 36, Peter basically raves about the Lord Jesus. Verses 22 to 24, Peter says, God made it obvious that Jesus was the promised king, the Messiah, through his miracles. Then he set it up for him to die in our place, even though we thought it was our idea and did our worst. God raised him from the dead. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, signs that God did through him in, in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Top that. Peter says. He turns to Psalm 16, which he quotes in verses 25 to 28. He points out that David was speaking ahead of time about the resurrection of Jesus, who died and rose again to bring about all this that's happening. Verse 31, he first on spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. This Jesus God raised up, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. He poured out this spirit that you're seeing. The fact for Peter that Jesus has just been installed as king of the universe makes all the difference in the world and has led to the pouring out of the Spirit, which leads to the punchline of verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See, in this first ever Christian sermon, what does Peter talk about? Not a hard question. He talks about Jesus. The Spirit enables Peter to point people to Jesus. Right from the get-go, this community revolves around Jesus. So what do we need to do? We need to make sure it's all about Jesus. At least a very simple question. Is Jesus Christ the great passion of my life? John Woodside, who was minister of Kilkenny Presbyterian here in the days that Willie was talking about for about 20 years, moved up to Drogheda after that. And just after he arrived in Drogheda, he told me a story about a young mainland Chinese woman whom he'd met through his milkman. <laughs> she'd arrived in Ireland without having the first clue about Christianity. Obviously, she'd grown up in a communist system. Within weeks of arriving here, she'd met some Christians, discovered the message of Jesus, and turned up at John's door and said simply in broken English, 
I want to be a Jesus person. <laughs> kind of sums it up. That's what the Spirit does. It makes us Jesus people. Doesn't matter whether we're loud or verbal or shy and retiring. The key question is ultimately, are we Jesus people? Is the Lord Jesus the great passion of our lives? Because that's what the Spirit does in us and longs to do. Perhaps the one thing we need to ask again over this weekend, whether we've been following Jesus for years or are just taking our first faltering steps after Him, that God would work through His Spirit in our lives to make Jesus our greatest passion, to show us that He is the greatest treasure that our soul could ever find. Over the years, I don't think there's been any writer whom God has used in His kindness to draw me to the beauty and peerless attractiveness of the Lord Jesus than the American preacher Jonathan Edwards from the 18th century. Listen to these words written in August 1736. Nobody wrote sermon titles like Jonathan Edwards. This one is called The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus. Now, let me warn you, the language is not snappy, but let the truth sink in. Here, let me a little expostulate with the poor, burdened, distressed soul. What are you afraid of that you dare not rest your soul on Christ? What is there that you could desire should be in a Savior that's not in Christ? What excellency is lacking in Him? What is there that is great or good or winning or adorable or endearing? Or what can you think of that would be encouraging that is not found in Jesus Christ? In Christ, infinite greatness and infinite goodness meet together and receive luster and glory from each other. His greatness is rendered lovely by His goodness. His infinite goodness received, receives luster from His greatness. And how glorious is this sight to see Him who is the great Creator and the supreme Lord of heaven and earth, full of tender pity and mercy towards us. This is Christ. Though He is the great God, He has brought Himself down to be, as it were, on a level with us, that He might not only be your Lord, but your brother. This is Jesus to whom the Spirit points. The Spirit makes Jesus our greatest passion. And one last thing. You'll see at the end of this chapter, the Spirit enables us to live the beautiful life together. What happens next is fairly simple. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, version 2.0, is born. Through the words spoken by Peter, the Spirit brings the new community to life. From verse 37, when they heard all this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest, what should we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. God is building a people like He always said He would. And with many other words, He continued to exhort them. 
3,000 people are added to this new church. Suddenly, God brings to life a new community, a people born of the Spirit, a community of equals whose shared passion is the Lord Jesus Himself, a community who, in the power of the Spirit, are for the first time enabled to live out the life which God has designed us for. You can see it sketched out quickly for the very first time in Acts 2, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They threw themselves into learning more about Jesus from the Scriptures. And to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, could be the Lord's Supper just eating together. And the prayers initially, the set times of prayer in the temple, but as the early chapters of Acts suggest, quickly spilling over into praying together at all manner of times. In other words, they shared their lives together because they knew that their shared passion for Jesus united them like nothing else ever could. On top of that, God keeps working to underline the truth of the message of Jesus by enabling the apostles to do the kind of authenticating signs, of, signs and wonders that God had done in the first exodus that Jesus himself had done. And now, verse 44, all the believers were together and held everything in common, selling their possessions and goods, distributing the proceeds as everyone had need. They didn't clearly put their assets all in a common pot in some sort of communist collective, but they shared their stuff. Do you like sharing your stuff? I confess I got a bit cranky last week before I left home because one of my children, who shall remain nameless in case they ever listen to this, took my cape cup at a moment when I could possibly have wanted to put a cup of coffee in my cape cup. Now, part of me says, Gary, you're 56, just grow up. But part of that just exposes the fact, I don't know if you've noticed, sharing stuff does not come easily. But the Spirit of God brings it about in people like us. The Spirit enables us to care for each other, provide for each other, love each other, nurture each other. That's what happens when the Spirit is present. They even relate well to outsiders. They showed favor to all the people, is how verse 47 should probably be translated. They were kind and generous, but it really wasn't down to them. See, the Spirit creates a new community of God's people, living under His Word, displaying the life that we read about in Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8 last night that the Israelites could never pull off. This genuinely, beautifully selfless, wholehearted, Christ-centered life of the kingdom. Could they do it perfectly? No. But were they doing it? Absolutely. This is the life which the Spirit brings about in us. Isn't it encouraging to know that God gave the Spirit to enable us to live like this in communities scattered all across Ireland, all across this planet, even to Australia, communities with their own particular flavor and ways of doing things and convictions, but united by the fact that we all belong to Christ, that Christ is our passion because the Spirit has been poured out on us as we've been united to Christ by faith. And so we stand together for Him under and in and on the one true gospel. It's the Spirit who draws us together here at Kinfar, people of the Word, people of the Spirit, people whose unity transcends ethnicity and politics and culture and background and denomination and personality. 
people like these three guys who are on the stage, drawn into gospel partnership by this Spirit, that together we might proclaim the excellencies of the one who's drawn us all out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are people of the Word, and praise God, we are also people of the Spirit. Born together into a new life, joined together as equals, eternally joined, as we'll see tomorrow night, as the one people of God whose greatest passion is only and always Jesus himself, as the people who've been empowered to live out the beautiful life to which he's called us, the life which displays his goodness and greatness to a watching world for his glory. The Spirit dwells in everyone who believes. Do you need to take hold of that this evening? The Spirit produces in us a passion for the Lord Jesus. Do you need to cry to Him for that this evening? Be assured He is poised to answer. And do we realize that the Spirit enables us to live the beautiful life given to us by the Lord Jesus. Perhaps we need to repent of not doing this. But the great news is that our Lord Jesus Christ has already done everything that it takes to enable people like us to live lives of godliness. And He has done it by pouring out His Spirit. So may God, in His great grace, enable us to live in a way which fits with who we are, to the glory of our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and King, you have done it all. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, and He has shown us that by pouring the Spirit into our lives. So, Lord, help us to live as people of the Word, people of the Spirit, people who keep in step with the Spirit as the Spirit enables us to walk in the ways that you have commanded us for the glory of Jesus. Work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.